you are essentially uncovering the layers of who I am. But that is what happens with discrimination. You know what I mean? Like you're essentially being take apart. Welcome to the ShakeOut Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Van Buskirk. This week, we speak with one of Canada's greatest track runners about the intersection of identity and sport. Mohamed Ahmed, Mo for short, is a multiple-time Olympian, Canadian record holder, and national champion. Born in Somalia, Mo and his family immigrated to St. Catharines, Ontario when he was 10 years old, and he eventually joined the Niagara Track Club. Mo attended the University of Wisconsin-Madison on an athletic scholarship. Following an illustrious NCAA career, he was recruited to the Portland-based Bowerman Track Club under coach Jerry Schumacher. I connected with Mo last week in Park City, Utah, where he and his team were halfway through a five-week altitude training camp. So I, I want to get into how training is going and how you're feeling about, you know, the, the future of our sport, certainly with all the, uh, you know, all the uncertainty moving forward. But I, I just I want to start first off. I know this has been a really emotionally trying and exhausting last couple of weeks for everyone. And obviously, especially so for members of our black community. I wanted to just check in and see how you're how you're doing with all of this and if you feel like you have some support there. Yeah, it's definitely been extremely uh like, you know, overwhelming, uh, frustrating, you know, just like, it's just so many, you know what I mean? Like so many of these events just keep happening again and again and again in a, in a repeated uh, fashion uh, to the point where you become numb, you know what I'm saying, to these things happening, you know? Um, you know, but as person of color, you, when you hear these things happening, you say, that could have been me, that could have been my brother, that could have been you know, one of my friends, you know, that that could have been a family member. So that makes it like that, that makes it closer to home and hit it, it hits at home. Uh, so, you know, uh, it's hard not to be frustrated and angry and uh, like overwhelmed, you know? Um, yeah. But I mean, you know, obviously like you know, a lot of my teammates are, you know, obviously there for me and there's like, there's three people that are me included that are uh, people of color on my team. And, you know, we, we kind of gather and uh, we kind of talk and we're always, you know, kind of there for each other. And obviously, like my family members. Uh, but yeah, like, obviously, like being in a very secluded area right now, um, I'm not really seeing uh, the events that are happening across cities in the United States directly. You know, I mean, in Portland, it's happening. A lot of protests are happening. And uh my brother is there and he, he's been telling me about it, um, but I really haven't, you know, seen it, you know what I mean? Like, because it's a little small town, uh, there's like very little gatherings. Uh, I'm not really like directly participating uh, in these because I'm kind of uh, far away from big cities where these gatherings are happening. So I'm essentially, everything is kind of limited to what I see on TV and what I see on social media and uh, the, the, the news feed that's just constantly either in my phone or computer or through, through, through my teammates So the, as, as stories develop. So those are the things that I'm kind of uh, working with. And yeah, it's difficult. It's very, very difficult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry. You say that your brother Ibrahim is, is in Portland and obviously there's a, a lot of activity and activism happening there. How's he doing? Is he okay? Yeah, he's doing pretty well. Yeah, I uh, called him and uh, he's he's doing pretty well. Like, you know, he's like, you know, we've been just been talking about uh, talking through it and uh, he's he's doing well as well. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I, I'm glad to hear that you have some support and I hope that continues to be true for yourself yeah, and the community absolutely. for sure. So, of course, you've spent a good deal of your adult life in the U.S. I mean, you were a standout NCAA All-American at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And now you've been yeah. a member of uh, the Bowerman Track Club for the last several years. But, of course, yeah. you are Canadian, smally Canadian. Um, yeah. And I was just wondering what, what sorts of things you've been experiencing in your time in the States that, that maybe have resonated with you as a, a person of color who's a high-level runner. And I, I know that there, you've experienced a yeah. lot of um, discrimination at the border, in particular, when trying to travel internationally. But just yeah. as, as a Canadian living in the States, um, how, how has that experience been for you over the last few years? 
Yeah. So yeah, like as you mentioned, like I've 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 lived uh, pretty much. I think so. I've lived in Kenya for ten years. I've lived in Canada for eight years. Through you know when I when I arrived uh, to Canada, two thousand one to two thousand nine, uh, when I went to elementary school, middle school, um, high school, and then I've been in the United States the last ten, eleven years almost. I think so. I've lived longer in the in the United States than I have in either of the other two places that I've lived in in my life. Um, yeah, and you know it's really interesting. Obviously, Canada has its its own problems and. Uh, you know, we do try and do our best to to state the the things that Canada is known for: multiculturalism, pluralism. But still, you know, what I'm saying there are uh, things that are inherent within the society. You know what I mean? And you know, growing up from 10 to 18 years old, um, I really didn't. Maybe I wasn't paying attention to it. Maybe I was naive to it. Um, yeah, like, I don't know, like, uh, in Canada, your color isn't necessarily uh, the one thing that people identify you with uh, at, at first sight, you know what I mean? And especially, like, in the city that I grew up in, you know, in the, the St. Catharines, there were a lot of Sudanese, there's a lot of, uh, not, a, not a huge uh, population of Somali, uh, there's Jamaicans, you know, so uh, the people of color have an ethnic component to it, you know what I mean, in, in Canada, in terms of identification. And I, I mean, I did see things, you know what I'm saying? Like I grew up in a, like a, a neighborhood in St. Catharines that's essentially, you know, one of the, like, like a poorer neighborhoods in St. Catharines, you know? So uh, Manchester is the, is the neighborhood that I grew up in. And uh, like, you know, like almost like housing projects. And, uh, um, you know, I did see, you know what I'm saying? Like the negative consequences of living in that closed off areas. I mean, you know, people who were living there are majorly poor people. Um, so, you know, you saw the effects of alcohol, the effects of uh, drug use. You saw the effects of, uh, you know, people, young people that I grew up with being succumbing to those pressures of uh, drug dealing and, and that kind of thing. And also running uh, with the with the with the law. So I did see those things. And but, you know, when you're young, it's very difficult for you to like consciously like think about these things and try and like why do these things happen and ask yourself difficult questions you know so um i really like i said like i didn't see the like and i think i was very busy with sports pretty early so i was almost kind of like closed off you know i mean i was kind of like my attention was diverted to sport and i was kind of like passionate about that and um i obviously showed some ability so i wasn't i don't know like people were kind of patting my head you know, I mean, to a certain extent, but um, you know, when I when I went to the United States, especially uh, you know Madison, Wisconsin, it is a very progressive city. Um, it is, I don't know, it's kind of, it's it's definitely welcome. It's it's a it's a university town, so it's a place of ideas. Um, but it was really the first time in my life where I was confronted with, you know, the fact like my color. You know what I mean? Like that mm-hmm. stood out. You know, and I it was, you know, obviously like I have different uh, baggages that I have, you know, I am Canadian, uh, I am Somali, you know what I mean? There is the uh, component of the uh, recent immigrant baggage that I carry with me. So uh, like my parents and, you know, the people, the, the elders of our community, they are naive to what can happen, you know what I mean, in a society. You know what I mean, they're, they're just kind of like, they came here for good opportunity to provide for their kids, you know what I mean? So they're motivated in a, particular way you know what i'm saying and whereas for us young people like uh, yeah we're going to university we're interacting with the society we're interacting with the with the law you know what i mean like we're we're you know we're uh, we're creating uh friends you know what i mean that have their experiences that have had an inequality and discrimination and race that have faced these things and we are also facing these things um but like like i said like you know, like the United States, like you are racialized, you know, immediately, you know, I mean, you go to the doctors. I remember the first day we were doing our, like our, our physicals uh, for the team. And, you know, the whole team is, is there at the hospital doing our physicals. And, you know, it's like, you're given a paper to fill and it's just like, what do you identify yourself as, you know? And I, you don't really see that in the United uh, in, in Canada, you know? And I was just like, Mm-hmm. whoa like you know what am i you know what i mean like i am somali i am canadian you know what i'm saying like i am black you know what i'm saying but like 
it's the only thing that it's given me to check is, you know, are you black? You know what I mean? So you really, you like, you have to think about it deeply, you know, and Madison is, yeah, very progressive, but it's very white. Uh, very few people of color uh, live in that, in, in, in the city. Um, and if they do, it's like in the outskirts of, of the city. It's like very like, there's literally, you have to go out of your way to, to get to those kind of neighborhoods. So I saw like very few people of color uh, in Madison. And oh, as the years went by, like even in my classes, like I was the one that people would look to for questions of representation. You know I mean? When it came to people of color, uh, you know, like, uh, like different types of religions and stuff like that, people would always look at me, you know? And I remember at a point, like it, it became extremely exhausting to be honest, because what you have to do is you want to, like a lot of people, like they mean well, they want to be educated, but you know, that it's the burden, the pressure is immense, you know, because you have to articulate it properly. You have to think about it in a proper way. So I'm not, you know, like I'm not limited to thinking about those things and those questions in a, in a classroom, just in classroom. You know I mean, I have to like take that question. And when I'm at home at the comforts of my apartment, while I'm studying for, you know, physics or whatever, like I have to think about these things. You know what I mean? So it was like almost like to the point where I wasn't like turning off. So it becomes like extremely exhausting to be thinking about these things, you know? And, uh, I remember uh, saying to one of my uh, friends, I was like, you know, I really don't know how how progressive Madison really is. I really don't know. And she was from, you know, the, the, this uh, uh, young lady, like she was from Madison, the area, you know, and she almost kind of got offended a little bit. Uh, but, you know, what I mean, like I wasn't like speaking in general terms. I was speaking in uh, on the on the factors that make a place for me feel like home and progressive, you know what I mean? And not seeing people of mm-hmm. color and interacting with people of color uh, on a daily basis um, was something that was unprogressive about this so-called progressive city. And yeah, it was, I tell you, like it was very, very exhausting towards the, the middle, uh, uh, towards the middle parts of, 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 of university. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, my teammate, uh, Marielle Hall, wrote a really, really nice piece on, on Runner's World. And uh, she stated, uh, you know, one of the reasons why she went to University of Texas, she's from New Jersey, but the reason why she went to University of Texas, a predominantly sprint uh, program, was because, you know, she wanted to, to, to have a black roommate, to have, you know what I'm saying, like a lot, you know, play, go to a place where there was uh, more of a, like a people of color, you know what I mean? And, and I always say this, you know what I'm saying? When people always say like, you know, where are you from? Or, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, I would always say, you know, like I'm from where I feel at home the most. And that is, you know, where I have love, where I have family. You know what I mean? St. Catharines, I'll say St. Catharines is my hometown and it's not necessarily, yeah, maybe it is necessarily like the memories that I, that, 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 that I had in those cities, but my loved ones are there, you know what I mean? So that's what makes it important and, and, and have an attachment uh, to that city. Yeah. And that's the thing. And, you know, like Portland is kind of the same thing. It's like a very, very progressive city. It's known as that, but it's also very white, you know what I mean? So uh, at times, you know, while while I'm, you know, living and roaming and uh, dining at like various different restaurants, you know, you know, I can't help but feel, feel black, you know what I mean? And uh, those are the, the things that you have to deal with. In addition to his experiences living as a black man in predominantly white communities in the U.S., just getting to those places presents a whole other set of obstacles. Mo is Muslim, and trying to cross national borders with a name like Mohammed Ahmed has been an ongoing and incredibly frustrating challenge. Yeah, like obviously, so there there is that ra- racial component that I had ex- experienced in the United States, but it's also the, the the religion aspect of it too. You know what I mean? So. He's a Canadian poet. Bona Muhammad is his name. And I remember like, uh, you know, he was kind of big during college. Uh, and he said, there's a line that resonated with me, which was, you know, I'm black and Muslim. Everywhere I go, someone hates me, you know? And I think I did, I did have that experience. And he's kind of speaking to, okay, yeah, he, he'll has the experience of phase in society as a black guy, but then also like as a, as a Muslim. And, uh, because like, you know, 2001, the terrorist attacks, it created the war on terror. 
and there, it, it put in, into place uh, in society and in places of travel uh, certain policies, you know? So if you have a name, you're going to be picked out, you know what I mean? Like you're going to like that. So for me, like for the five years that I was going back and forth between, you know, Canada to visit my family and Wisconsin for my university, like I, I'm telling you, like, despite having my, you know, I-91, I have my student visa, like I would get stopped all the time, you know what I mean? And it, it was just like, you know, I would try and like have a good laugh about it. But like, there were times where I was like extremely pissed off. I was really, really extremely like upset because I'm like, you know, what are you doing is you are essentially uncovering the layers of who I am. Um, you know what I'm saying? But that is what happens with discrimination. You know what I mean? Like you're essentially being take apart. You know what I mean? Like you look at, okay, where are you from? What is your name? You're being scrutinized to an extreme extent. And that there's something totally unsettling about that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, four or five years of that, like, you know, I would always just laugh about it and say, oh, here we go again, traveling while Muhammad, you know, like I would always do that. And I did, you know, write about it in that piece, you know, the the, the encounter with, uh, with me and my high school coach when I was traveling to visit the University of uh, uh, Washington, where I got yanked out of the car and, you know, like my, likewise to, to my coach, Alex Ach, yanked as well. You know, and that was like, and I remember he was like, man, like, are we going to get sent to like Guantanamo Bay? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he, he actually said this. Mo said that he's had these experiences so often that he's learned to laugh them off. But one memory in particular has really stuck with him. He had returned to St. Catharines during the off season a few years ago to visit his family. He and his youngest brother, Hamza, were planning to travel back to the States together at the end of the visit so that Hamza could explore Portland. And uh, we're traveling from Pearson Airport to Portland, direct flight. And I have a visa. He doesn't have a visa, but he's going to be visiting me. So he should be fine to, to enter through travel visa. Immediately, the guy was just like, something is up here. You know what I mean? Like, he just couldn't we explained everything together. We're traveling together, brothers, um, all this stuff. And he just sent us to extra screening. Um, we're like, okay, got separated too. We weren't together. We got separated. He got sent to a one and I got sent to a one and he's, you know, 18 years old at this time. And this is like his first time getting, uh, pulled over, you know what I mean? To like for extra screening. Whereas, I mean, I've had 10 years of experience and I remember, you know, it took like 30, 40 minutes. We missed our flight. So we, we had exited or, uh, we had, uh, passed the, American border security, right? In, in, in Pearson. So we go to our gate, flight left. So we're like, all right, what do we need to do? So we go back, go to the airline that we, uh, the counter. So we exit back, you know what I'm saying? Back into Canadian soil, you know, through, through the, whatever the procedures. Um, so we got put into another flight. The only flight that had was Toronto, Vancouver, and then Vancouver to Portland. Um, so when we got to Vancouver, we had to re inner through, you know, we have to uh, clear customs again, exact same things. Within 10, 15 hours, we got sent to uh, extra screening twice. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it was, I remember just being so frustrated and so upset because I'm like, this is, this is ridiculous. Two times. And this guy, literally everything is written there. You know what I mean? Like they, they had cleared us, all this, everything is there. You know what I mean? But we still got sent. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's discrimination, early discrimination on various different counts. And yeah, I mean, what, what can you do, right? Like you just have to try, take the hits and, uh, you know, try and hope that things change, you know? I hear you laughing a bit and I, 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 it sounds to me, it's like you've just been through this so many times that like you said, it's, you know, here we go again, here we go again. Yep. One of the things you talked about there and, you know, most of the experiences you've just referred to that's just getting across a shared North American border. Yeah. This is just for you to be able to go back and forth for things like school or, you know, your job. You're a professional runner. Yeah. Now I, I want to take you back to, you know, the to May of twenty seventeen when you were supposed to be going to Doha for the Diamond League event. Yeah. And so you talked a minute ago about the layers of identity, right? So yeah. you're Somali born, you're Canadian, you lived in Kenya, you now um, reside 
predominantly in the US. That's where you went to school. You're yeah. Muslim. And it sounds like all of these have acted as checks against you in terms of your ability to travel with yep. ease and safely across borders. The, the the thing that really strikes me with that is that a huge element of your identity is that you are a professional athlete. You're yeah. a highly accomplished professional athlete. Yep. And that level of your identity seems to have not mattered whatsoever Absolutely. in these experiences. Yep. So if, and if I if I understand this correctly, you are scheduled to fly from Portland to Doha for the Doha Diamond League. You are scheduled to run in the 3,000 meter, which, of course, for our listeners to understand, the Diamond League is uh, a tiered system so that you accumulate points throughout the season. And in order to compete in the final, you need to have amassed a certain number of points leading up to that. Yep. And Doha, of course, it's one of the most prestigious, fastest races in the world, but it also counts in that point accumulation system towards that final. So there's there's so much at stake here, not only in terms of the importance of that one meet, but from a financial perspective and an opportunity perspective moving forward, there's a domino effect here. Yes. And you had everything prepared that you needed for you know safe, easy crossing and passage but again it sounds like something you were so accustomed to you were flagged and you were not permitted to leave the country and as far as i understand that's because you did not you were not able to prove that you had a return ticket booked already from doha is that correct uh no actually that was uh to that was uh switzerland actually that was different uh yeah i was with matt Hughes during that time oh, okay yeah yeah so the, on this particular um situation um you know, I was traveling from Portland. So my flight was Portland, Vancouver, uh, Frankfurt or something like that, uh, Europe, um, and then to Doha. So it was a super long um, travel. It was almost like 20-something hour travel already, you know, because, wow. yeah. So it was like, you know, traveling from the West Coast, it takes a long time to clear even the East Coast of, of Canada and the United States. Um, mm-hmm. So I get there like, you know, uh, well enough time. And I, and I, I, you know, I've experienced this like being flagged so many times that I have to like get there way in advance um, to, to deal with the, the, the potential uh, of being flagged and it, it taking some time to clear my name and then clearing uh, the security check and all that stuff, you know? So I go to the gate and yep, my name is flagged. And this is like two hours before the flight leaves. So I'm, I'm there, like, you know, the lady is just on the phone going back and forth, back and forth. She was on the phone for, I don't know, like 45, 50 minutes, you know? Um, and by the time she was, I guess she might've been getting switched back and forth between two, several different people. Um, and the time expired, you know what I'm saying? So it took almost an hour. I was standing there for a whole hour and the time expired. So I get cleared. Um, but technically, Portland, uh, Vancouver is considered international flight. So mm-hmm. an hour before the gate is it's shut. And it was like, I can't I can't print, I can't check you in, I can't like I can't uh, print your tag. Uh, I'm sorry, you know, what I'm saying we're gonna have to like, uh, put you on another flight that leaves tomorrow or something like that and it, it would have added like another 10 hours to my travel you know so i'm and i'm and i'm here i'm like i'm going home you know what i'm saying like i'm canadian i have you know canadian passport you know what i'm saying if you have a problem with me you know what i'm saying or the authorities in canada have a problem with me i am a canadian citizen um put me on this flight you know what i'm saying and while i'm in the air you know what i'm saying deal with my potential threat um and uh, i was i was frustrated and then the point where I was like, it's not even worth going all the way to, 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 to Doha to race. And yeah, like I wanted to break the Canadian record in the 3000 meters. So there were uh, some bonuses that I could have hit there. Um, I could have, you know, potentially like, obviously like try and qualify for the, for the diamond league, you know, where there's a bigger purse price money. Um, Mm -hmm. And even during the race, finishing in a higher place, and competing within that race, I would have had some some prize money there too. So it was like a, I mean, like a three way um, financial loss, you know what I mean? And but then also like the frustration, you know what I'm saying? Like uh, being vi- violated, you know what I mean? Like you, 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 it feels completely wrong, you know what I mean? Like so, yeah. These types of experiences are so common for Mo that he's learned to expect them anytime he travels. 
and they're made all the more frustrating when he sees the ease with which his white teammates and friends pass through the same spaces and procedures that pose constant challenges for him. So, yeah, and even the one with um, Zurich, like, so it was me, Matt Hughes, we competed at the Canadian Championships in Ottawa, we drove, got to, like, Toronto, and we were going direct, Toronto to Zurich directly, um, and we didn't know what races we were going to do. You know what I mean? So we didn't have like uh, a return flight out of, out of Zurich. And I guess somehow it's a policy of theirs that they, that you have to have that. And I didn't have it. He didn't have it. Matt Hughes didn't have it. Nothing was working for me. So I have to get in line. Matt just boom, 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 gets everything. He's waiting on me. And I'm like, man, like I got flagged. I don't know what the hell's going on. I got to go clear through the normal line. Like an actor in a play who is forced to perform in every airport, Mo has memorized his lines and delivers them carefully each time he interacts with a new antagonist. He explains that he's an athlete, shows his Athletics Canada profile, his agent's information, his affiliation with the Bowerman Track Club, proof of his name on the start list of major races. It's even been suggested that he start carrying his international medals with him when clearing customs and security. None of this seems to make any difference. In this particular example, he's told that despite his white teammate not having to do the same, Mo must show proof of a departing flight from Zurich. Not wanting to relive the experience of missing a flight, Mo ends up scrambling to book a flight out of Zurich that he knows he's going to cancel right after the exchange with the agent. But he needs it to prove that before he even enters the country, he's already planning to leave. This wouldn't be the last time that year that travel to Switzerland would be problematic. Later that summer, I was actually traveling back into Zurich for the Diamond League final, right? So I had made it, you know what I'm saying? Despite not um, running on Doha, like through other, meet and other, other races, I was able to accumulate points to get to the final. So we were a bunch of athletes uh, that we competed in Birmingham Diamond League, like the whole plane. You know, so we went from Birmingham to Zurich, and they're all athletes. On the, the people on the plane are all athletes. A lot of Ethiopians, Kenyans, you know, Qataris and Europeans, all this stuff. You know, Canadians, Americans, all traveling. So we get to the uh, customs of uh, in uh, Zurich, and same thing happened to uh, this uh, this uh, lady um, who she was able to obviously like. She didn't have any problems. Nobody told her agent, her agent booked like the plane and stuff like that, but she didn't know where she was going next. Right. As a lot of the, you're going from one meet to the other, to the other. So you have no idea. So like this Ethiopian uh, athlete was right in front of me. Right. And obviously I remember like later that earlier that summer, this happening to me. So she goes up to the desk, gives her passport. And the guy was just scolding her completely. She didn't understand English. and it's, I think the policy that, that this travel, that you got to have like a, a return ticket is uh, for, you know, immigrants from directly going in and not getting out. I think that's what they're going at. You know what I mean? And I think, I think for me, like it was probably, it was the, my Somali, uh, um, my Somali-ness was probably the, the, the factor that limited me from flying like Matt did, you know? Um, so I, I, for me, like I was standing right there. I remember, you know what I'm saying? Like my, my earlier experience and, you know, Ethiopian lady, she does not speak English and he's just yell, you know, yelling at her, telling her like, no, 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 this. And I'm just looking and I'm just like, we're all athletes here. Like you, you, you know, you experience, you know, you let five, six, seven people before her and you know, she's an athlete, you know, this for a fact, like, wh like, what is, what is the freaking issue here? You know what I mean? Um, and I couldn't stand it. I, I had to like, you know, go up to, to the guy and just be like, excuse me. Like, I think she doesn't, uh, she, obviously let me try to help her. And I was like, she's an athlete. I'm an athlete. She, you know, she's trying to like get into the me, the people, uh, her agent booked this, like she, you know, she, she has no responsibility for booking this. She, she doesn't even know this, you know, she's just trying to compete in this diamond league race. And, he was not having it, you know what I mean? And he let me through and he put her aside. And to the point where I immediately went to the uh, the organizing committee and I said, hey, there, there's a situation back there. You guys need to go in there and go grab her. And that's what they did. You know, they went back up there and, and they grabbed her. And yeah, so, yep. 
the the other piece to this though it sounds like is that you have had to you've been forced to exhibit unbelievable self-restraint you don't have an outlet for your frustration it sounds like in many ways you're not even able to voice your concern for other people in this type of situation because we all know that there's unchecked power in many of these cases where someone can say well you know you've pissed me off i'm just not going to let you through now yeah exactly yeah and you know for me like obviously i <laughs> from a young age like i have to deal with this like 13 14 you know like my our club used to like um travel out of buffalo new york uh because of the proximity to that to that airport it was easier for us we used to do like training camps in uh alabama and florida during uh march break and we would always travel cross the border to travel to buffalo mm-hmm. same thing you know what i'm saying so 13 14 15 years with my club like i was having this you know what i mean and at that time i was kind of like what what is going on you know um so you know it's the constant exposures you know what i mean and to a certain extent you do kind of become a bit numb and but in some ways also you have to like i don't know like i try and not take it like personal to a certain extent you know what i mean but obviously I did, you know what I mean? Like there's the internal, you know what I mean? Like it's it's very difficult to measure the internal experience that you're feeling, you know what I mean? Like the the stress, the the, the anxiety that that creates. And obviously like throughout the lot, you know, throughout the years, like I'm telling you, like traveling, getting on a plane, airports, that is not an enjoyable thing for me. Like I despise that aspect of it, you know, because I know how frustrating, I know the, the hurdles that I have to potentially overcome, you know? So that part, you know, I can be like, oh, I'm going to like vacation here. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not even thinking about that. You know, like once I get there, I'll start thinking about it. For years, Mo couldn't find an adequate outlet for the emotions brought on by these experiences. He would get frustrated, tired and angry, but just had to live with these feelings. But he says that it was that trip from Toronto to Portland with his younger brother, Hamza, that triggered something in him. And he began to write. He shared with us the piece that he wrote that day, and we'll include it in the show notes to this episode. It's called uh, um, Scribbles from a Secondary Screening Room, an expected procedure at all ports of exit and entry for a decade plus. You know, my name is cool. My name is popular. My name is always picked out of the flock, out of the pack. Am I a marked bull ready for slaughter at any moment on your marks? Is it because I'm black, brown? or lack of temperament and sternness to utter fuck off, I've done no wrong. What's the need to unpack my background, the frailty of my people, the civility of my character, the stable of my childhood, the full scale of my wrath? Something's totally amiss, completely odd, and I can't do the math. Why must you want to pay my utter dissimilarity of so-and-so, such-and-such, my association, apathy, my anger, my pain, my point of view to test my patience and confidence? To scratch my growth, my hurt, my suffering, my foresight, my thinking, my knowledge, where I've been, where, I, where I'm headed, what lines I've drawn, the extent of my travel, the distance traversed from home, to scan my heart, touch the state of my mind, to dig the depths of my being, to glimpse all I've seen and done. What's the point of all this? To force myself to cave my face in with questions, to circle a circle and of questions around my surroundings, to, to grow quieter, to collapse, to collapse onto the depths of myself, to shelf pieces of my own, to get us like, like a tensed up vessels, to have us all cold up on the curbside, to get us to surrender existence itself, to have us all disoriented and bottled up, constantly wandering around and talking aloud, scatterbrained, overwhelmed, like herd of sheep, to get us all crazy and messed up, to get us up and out of here. I mean, you know, it, it speaks to what discrimination, like, does, right? Like, which is, like I mentioned earlier, it completely dissects you, you know? It's your name, your family, your your childhood, you know? It, everything is, like, taken into consideration uh, to the point where you are completely violated or you feel that you're completely violated. Um, and it really questions, you know, your value to society, your value to yeah, to, to, to everything, you know what I mean? Even the thing that you are doing. Talking about outlets, 
You mentioned Mariel Hall earlier, and her piece is stunningly beautiful. It's it's incredibly well written. We'll link it in the show notes. It's uh, mm-hmm. been published on Runner's World and elsewhere. And there's a line in her piece that really struck me. And she said she talked about purposeful pain. Mm-hmm. And she says that as a runner, she signs up for and in fact, looks forward to and embraces pur- the purposeful pain of running. Mm-hmm. And how that pain is in such direct contrast to the pain she experiences when she sees these acts of violence, deadly acts of violence, discrimination, atrocities towards communities of people that look like her and how that purposeful pain is something she turns to. Um, And and, and you spoke earlier about about numbness and that that sounds quite natural that there would be an element of that when you're sort of facing the same thing over and over without change. How does how does running play into this, if at all, for you in terms of that concept of purposeful pain or, or purpose in general? Yeah, I mean, for me, running, I can say, like, saved my life because, you know, it brought me, it, it afforded me a lot of opportunities, education. Um, it exposed me to good people. Um, it, uh, it exposed me to, it, in some ways, even like it forced people that shouldn't have, um, help me to, to help me, you know, because of the ability and the potential that they saw in me. Um, for example, like, you know, like I, like I said earlier, like I, I mentioned, um, you know, I come from, you know, uh, impoverished, like uh, community, you know what I mean? In St. Catharines, you know, and, uh, my, my, my parents didn't have much. And once like, you know, through high school, I, um, showed some sort of potential for running, you know, the local track club, Niagara Olympic club, like came to me and said, Hey, you know, we think we, you, you're good. You know, I think you, you have something, um, and, uh, come out for a club. And once they realized, like, I wasn't able to like, I couldn't afford to pay for, you know, all the expenses that the club requires, you know, our club, like, you know, helped me pay for, for some of it, like my coaches, like, for example, like, uh, making the Canadian world junior team back in the day, you had to pay for, you know, the, the expenses that like, travel and, and accommodation uh, back in the day. And, mm-hmm. you know, my, my, my high school coaches and club uh, helped pay for that, you know, and without without running and without showing that potential, obviously good people, they, they saw the potential in me and where I come from and who I am and, and uh, uh, my color, none of that mattered to them. They just saw the potential and they, they wanted to help this kid grow. Um, and they, they did that for me. But running was the thing that said, we can help, we have to help this kid, you know what I mean? And even the point that my, you know, the, the society, uh, my city, like some people within that society, teachers and everything like that, helped donate it and help me um, with, with finances, you know what I mean? Where I could just like focus on running and everything. And, you know, I feel like those type of things in terms of, um, you know, like white people and uh, um, people that wanna, you know, uh, contribute to the progress of a change within our society, that is one way of doing it. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's those things. It's, it's standing up for people. You know, for example, like uh, my, my, I'm talking about my, my coach again here, um, Sharon Stewart, like the one time I was going back to university and my passport expired within a month of me being back in the States. I realized this. So I was like, I have to renew this, but I didn't realize it until like five days before I had to travel. So I was like, okay, can I do the expedited version? I'll pay whatever it takes. Um, but I, that particular day I went in, I gave, you know, explained my stuff. I gave my passport. The one, the lady that was helping me was just like, no, nah, we're not doing this. You know, you need to, and I, I explained, I was like, I'm not going to be back for a number of months. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to want to travel mm-hmm. to Europe. And um, it was actually right before the, um, the Olympics is uh, 2012, January, 2012. And I, I had planned to make that team. And I was like, I'm not going to be back. You know, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to be in the United States. I'm going to try to hopefully hit the standard. And um, I, I don't think I'm going to be back here anytime soon. And the lady just refused. And I was just like, what the, so like, you know, my, my high school coach, Sharon Stewart, again, like she got whiff of this news and she just like, all right, I'm picking you up, you know, like, so she picked me up <laughs> from home and uh, grabbed all my stuff. And she just scolded this individual, got the supervisor, 
And, you know, the supervisor fixed it up like that. You know what I mean? And I look at it and I'm like, this is incredible. This is great. Like, you know, she did this for me, but you know, in some ways inside me, I'm like, I wish I could do this for myself. You know what I mean? <laughs> so there, there is that, that, that feeling. And, um, you know, like running, like I said, like it really, really helped me. You know what I mean? It's an outlet. It's a, it's an outlet that I can take my frustrations on, uh, whenever I'm feeling, you know, whatever emotions that, that I'm, that I'm feeling, it's something that I can, you know, take my energy out on in, in a, in a positive way. Um, it, it mm-hmm. took me out of, you know, uh, my community, you know what I mean? Like the community that, you know, that I grew up in and that in which I saw a lot of, you know, my friends succumb to, um, different different way of life you know what i mean than the one that i was given and in many ways i'm so lucky i mean and i think that's probably why um i'm when i encounter uh discrimination and you know all the years of of travel that i that i like feel somewhat like you know hopeful you know what i mean and 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 kind of had a bit of humor you know i'm saying to laugh it off you know what i mean yeah running running saved my life honestly so I want to fast forward to this this past fall, 2019 World Championships, in what seems like the pinnacle so far of your career. Yeah. And I'm talking about, of course, this this stunning bronze medal at the World Championships in Doha, ironically. I watched it live. I've rewatched it several times since. I watched it again ahead of this interview, and it it gets me nervous every time, even though I know the outcome. Yeah. Personally, I think it's one of the greatest displays I can ever think of of, a, of an athlete demonstrating the will to never, ever give up. Yeah. Um, and, and I want to ask you a bit about that experience, but I also want to ask you, again, you have had a, a, an illustrious career, highly decorated, very successful across a number of years in different distances. But in, in Rio 2016, you missed that podium by such a, a painstakingly close amount. And you've talked a lot about the heartbreak from that fourth place finish in Rio, mm-hmm. despite it being a stellar performance. Mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you the contrast between that Rio final and that Doha final and how that Rio experience informed you going into the world championships where you ultimately won a global medal. Uh, yeah. Hmm. That is uh whew, 2016. Yeah. 2016 was sort of, you know, the year that I, showed some glimpses of potentially competing with the best in the world um you know i had always dreamt about it i I had always hoped about it um all the times that i represented canada the junior levels i I always kind of had a um you know a feeling of i didn't i I deserve to be here but like i didn't train that hard there's no way in hell that i can compete with these with the with the with the with the kenyans and ethiopians and the best in the world um, so I was always kind of felt insecure uh, and and had a lot of doubts. And over the years, you know, like I made my first team in 2012. Um, I made the my second team in 2013 where I finished nine. Um, I somehow said, okay, like, let's try and knock on the door, keep knocking on the door. And 2016 was the first time, you know, that I, at Prefontaine, earlier that summer, I finished third and I was competing with, um, Mokhtar Idris and uh, Komoro and I actually took the lead and had the audacity to take the lead with a lot to go and um, you know they, they caught me I blew up the last 150 but I was like I'm gonna aspire to compete with these guys you know what I mean they are humans they are bodies uh, you know what I mean they are I'm, I've worked hard too and it was one of those things where training was probably the the easiest that it had been you know like workouts I was crushing workouts I was just like possessed you know and the way that i envisioned that race was i felt going in i could get a medal and i felt that i could get a medal in the 10,000 meters uh but because of the pressure that i put on myself i completely exhausted myself honest to god like i remember if i look back on on the like you know the the day of the 10,000 meters anxiety just nervousness like just couldn't wait for the race to come and the race was at like nine ten o'clock at night so how do you uh conserve your energy how do you deal with um you know uh the nervousness throughout the whole day like what do you do you know what i'm saying what tasks do you give yourself netflix mm-hmm. or read a book or listen to music or even the type of music that you listen to is 
is also mm-hmm. necessary, you know, because it can get you hyped up. And how do you like calm yourself down throughout the whole day? And I, if I were to look on that day, I failed on all spots. Like every, like you know, I was just so anxious and ready to go. You know what I mean? And by the time I got to the race, warmed up, um, got into the call room, like got to the starting line, I was just a ghost. I mean, I think you can look at that me and that, uh, and and look at my face in the start line of the ten thousand meters in Rio, and I was just, I was just pale. I was, like, I was just a ghost. You know what I mean? And. Um, I, I freaked out and panicked and I don't know, like just kind of shut it down with whatever, eight, whatever. And I, I think I finished like almost dead last. Um, but, you know, I had five days between the 5,000 meters heat and the 10,000 meters. And those five days were probably the five days that I grew the most individually because I was upset at myself. I was disappointed. I was doubting myself. I was, you know what I'm saying? I came into the games with high hopes and getting a medal in the 10,000 meters and I completely failed. I panicked. I I was just horrible in every way and I was so hard on myself and, but it enabled me to grow uh, to the point where, you know, my coaches obviously helped me out. My, my, my family helped me out. I wrote down, you know what I'm saying? All the, uh, all the good information that people sent to me, you know what I mean? In order to clear my mind and to, um, to compete to the best of my ability in the 5,000 meters. And, uh, you know, my, my high school coach uh, said to me, sometimes races don't go as planned. You have still done all the right prep work. So reset and put this one out of your mind. Focus on the 5,000 meters. And, you know, he even said, like, maybe get a haircut to make you feel just a little different. And I did do that, actually. Uh, I, was, I, I was telling myself, pump the ball, man, pump the ball. That, those are the little things that I was telling myself. Uh, Alex Ach, my one of my other high school coaches, uh, was like, you know, he always used to say Bismillah, which, which it's like a, it's like a prayer. It's like a, and best of beginnings, you know what I'm saying? Like people like Muslims, like, you know, say it, um, in the name of God kind of thing. Like they, you know, they, uh, when they eat, they say Bismillah. When they start a task, they say Bismillah. He always said that. And he's also said, I've seen you rally to your cause many times before. You know, my dad was like, uh, you know, only a healthy man can seek his destiny. You are healthy. Go for it. Um, and my my whole family, you know, my mom, everybody was like, get ready for the other one. That's essentially what they were telling me. So I wrote those things down. I gave myself, you know, tasks to do to to occupy myself, to occupy my mind, and to not do what I did in that 10,000 meters. So those five days between the 5,000 meters and the 5,000 meter heats, I worked on those things. And then I made the final. And I even I had another three days. So it was a lot of time to, you know, to really think about it. And I just kind of used all the information that, you know, people were giving me, the positive energy, you know what I'm saying, the positive self-talk, you know what I mean? I, I learned from the mistakes that I made um, for the 10,000 meters. And I said, don't do that, you know? And I arrived at the 5,000 meters that day. I think me and Jerry uh, took a taxi. We had expected uh, to be like huge traffic. But on that particular day, I think it was like the soccer game or something like that. Brazil was in the final of the soccer. Everything was a go. So we got to the stadium like three hours before our race. And I just remember being calm, like really, really calm and feeling good and even the night before when me and when i did the when i did the see me jerry was like man you look good man you look you know you look good and i used that positive energy you know and i arrived and uh, the race went out fast and you know there was a bunch of bumping there was a bunch of elbowing there was you know that could have caused me you know the, the a position here and there or my momentum and everything like that but those but that's how races go and you know for me yeah, okay, I finished, you know, fourth. Um, I remember being just just in tears. And I'm, I'm not a person that cries most of the time. I really don't. And that one time I finished the race uh, and I and I just, I was in disbelief. I was like, did I get a medal? And I look at the board and I, you know, I see that I was, you know, outside the medals and uh, I just got to the ground and I was just, just, broke down you know what I mean and you know my, my friend Hassan Needs grabbed me and you know gave me a hug and you know what I mean like I had to like gather myself and compose myself to even conduct an interview uh, but I really really thought I was going to be number two like I felt like Mo Farah was at a, another spot in the world but I was like I'm getting a silver at least you know and I think that my, my disappointment was that fact of not 
getting a medal and I envisioned it and all the months that I that were leading up to it each workout that I was crushing I was like this is a medal this is a medal this is a medal um and not getting that is extremely disappointing Mo didn't linger long on these emotions. He had to regroup quickly and prepare for the following year's World Championships in London, where, again, he set his sights on the ambitious 5,000-meter, 10,000-meter double. But, once again, he came away from those 2017 Worlds disappointed, placing 6th in the 5,000 and 8th in the 10,000. The medals that he so desperately coveted continued to elude him. You know, but I will say, like, I'm glad everything happened as it was. You know what I mean? All the disappointment in 2016 really made me the, the athlete that I am. And, you know, like, sweet are the uh, uses of adversity. That's what that's what enables you to grow as an athlete. And 2019 20, uh, in Doha, I think, you know, I was using all that energy. You know what I mean? All the disappointment, all the... Uh, the times that I came short um, in the Diamond League race at the World Championships at the Olympics and just kind of telling myself, you know, bring this good energy throughout the whole year to each workout, to uh, to each run, to accept and embrace the grind, um, you know, the 90 to 100 mile weeks, back to back to back, the hard grueling workouts, um, even, you know, learning how to even uh, like, you know, interact with, with my teammates even, you know what I mean? Like I am part of a incredibly talented and competitive uh, group, you know? So how do you even, when you're doing the work, how do you manage your energies? So I even, you know, got to that extent. And last year I felt like calm, you know what I mean? And in many ways, to be honest, like, you know, 2018 and 2019 were probably the hardest years of my life and outside of track and field, outside of running. You know what I mean? Like, you know, different things and things that you can't control. But I don't know, like I used running to just, I channeled it and I used it to the best of my ability. Um, And I don't know, like I was determined. And it was one of those really interesting things where I arrived at those world championships at the fittest. And the thing was, I felt like 2019, I had started working with Mary Lou. And, you know, at the beginning of that year, like even during the off season, uh, fall of 2018, I spent a whole month in Vancouver working with Mary Lou, a physiotherapist, working on all my weaknesses and learning about my, my body. And, and then throughout the whole year, like I, me and her worked on like just adding a little bit layers, a little bit layers of strength of growth, uh, physically and all the little like homework that she was giving me felt like, I don't know, I felt productive, you know what I mean? Like, I felt like I was not leaving any stones unturned, and I was showing up to the workouts and doing the best that I could. And I arrived at the World Championships, and, like, I felt I did everything I could, and I was at peace with whatever was to happen. I was like, yes, I was putting pressure on myself. I remember telling myself, don't F this up. You know what I mean? Like, you might be the fittest guy on the field, you know what I mean? Like I had rabbited uh, my teammates uh, to, you know, sub 13 and 13 flat, you know what I mean? Like three weeks before the world championships, uh, took them, you know, 4,800 meters. And, you know, like that gave me a positive, you know, another confidence, you know what I mean? And I remember Jerry saying, man, like, maybe you could have run 1250, maybe you could run 1240, you know, how do we know? And I was like, if, if you could do that, man, you're the fittest guy. Um, you know, here, you know what I'm saying? Like everybody was in the circuit killing each other. You just did an incredible job. And there is an added uh, pressure that comes with that, you know what I mean? But I just showed up, you know what I mean? Even the way that I was reacting, you know what I'm saying, to Jerry saying, you can get a medal, like stating that fact, there was a calmness to it. Mm-hmm. Whereas in 2016, you know what I mean? Like he was like, I think you can get a medal. And it just added anxiety and pressure and nervousness. But, you know, it's the growth, you know what I mean? I think if I look at my career uh, from high school, I had just discovered running. I was like, okay, you're good. Um, And then I became passionate about it. I became uh, serious about it. Once I joined my track club, I got introduced to serious, rigorous, uh, you know, training or some sort of uh, structured training. Um, And I fell in love with it. And, but, you know, my first earlier years, I wasn't, I wasn't that good. I mean, 
especially first year, I wasn't good. The second year, I kind of was like, okay, top two, top three, um, a competitor. And then, you know, grade 11, grade 12 is really when I took off. And it's just a slow, slow development. You know what I mean? Like I kind of went through the slow development. I really did have great coaches, you know what I mean? And at that, at that level in high school, you need coaches that encourage you, you know what I mean? Like just, that's pretty much one of the biggest things is just encouragement, you know what I mean? Like allow kids to like believe in themselves. So that's what they did. Um, and then even university, same kind of thing, you know, like it's very difficult to, to do rigorous training, you know what I mean? And we did whatever we could, you know what I'm saying? During the winter, we had limiting factor of running in the winter and, uh, um, you know, not just, I couldn't hammer every single day. We couldn't go hard every single day and, and during the winter in Wisconsin. And that kind of limited us in some way, but it was a good thing, you know, because it preserved my body, I felt like, in a, in a, in a way. Mo attributes a lot of his ongoing success to the coaches who have helped shape and direct his athletic progress. This was partly luck and partly by design. He credits his high school and club coaches with setting the example for what it meant to develop an athlete's long-term health and passion for sport as priorities. He then sought university and professional teams who would mirror these values. You know, I'm kind of doing similar style of, uh, of training that I did in high school and college and now. And obviously the only difference is, is the volume, the intensity and the people that you're doing it with. And um, like that is what enabled me to take that jump. And it's a slow development for me, you know, and uh, yeah, I just keep growing. And I would say one of the things that I really, really uh, enjoy is setting a goal, putting it out there and try and go for it. And if I fail, going back on the drawing board, there's actually nothing better than that. You know what I mean? Like it's because it's the fun of it. You know what I mean? Like once you accomplish, once you like achieve whatever you were going for, like, let's say I'm going for a medal, you know, and I'm finishing fifth, I'm finishing sixth, I'm, you know, knocking on the door, but I'm going back on the drawing board. I'm saying, okay, what did I do wrong? What, you know, what can I change? How can I, you know, I'm like, think, you know, kind of going back and forth with this and, 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 and trying to make it work. And then you finally do it. Ah, it's a, the most incredible, like, it's, you can't, it's, it, you can't, you can't even explain it. You can't put it into words. It's like the greatest feeling in the world. And, you know, I always, you know, like people that take shortcuts, you know what I mean? You know, with cheating and stuff like that. I'm like, man, like that was the best part. That really was the best part, the, the up and down, you know, like, come on. How can you enjoy yourself, you know, after the fact? It makes what you're saying makes so much sense when you watch your progression over the years, especially I would say from 2016 to 2019, you could see your confidence building as an athlete yeah. and you ran in such a controlled, composed, mature way in Doha. Like you, you, you took the lead, I think with about 1200 to go, mm -hmm. you were, but you were composed. It didn't look like you were doing it because you were running scared. Mm -hmm. You weren't, you know, throwing yourself into a situation that you weren't ready for it. You just, and, and the announcers said that, you know, the commentators, everyone just, it was so evident that this was a man who knew what he was doing knew what he wanted to get after and he was going to put himself in the best place to do that. Yeah. And it obviously paid off. You just, you were there, but you stuck in it the entire way. I was going to ask you what it felt like to finally cross that line, having cinched that medal after all of these years of that, you know, this culmination after years of this, I don't know, journey of, of love and toil. Yeah. And I don't know if you can put it in words. Can you? I mean, you've sort of already said that. It, it's hard to describe. Yeah, no. I, you know, like like I said, I think in that race, the one thing that I did was like me and my coach had this, it was a good positive energy, you know, before it, during the warm up, right before uh, I went into the call, call room. Um, it was just like, it was just a good vibe, you know what I mean? And um, we had laid out a plan. We had committed to it. And I think the commitment aspect of it was because of immature, you know, being not ex not being experienced enough was the thing that was enabling me to come short in all those previous years. Yeah. Uh, how do I, you know, um, the, the energy, how do I reserve my energy, you know what I'm saying, conserve it? How do I, you know, I mean, how do I deal with my, my opponents staring them in the face, you know, in a, in a really, in a little small cubicle right before you face them in the field of competition? like. How do you deal with that? You know what I mean? Do you get intimidated? Do you get your chest up? Do you say, I am good. I do belong here. I, you know what I mean? I do those things. And I think like, yeah, like I said, like plan. I got in, in a great 
great shape. I believed in myself. I felt like everything that I needed to do throughout the course of the year, I did do that. So I was like, no, you know, I'm not, I'm not doubting myself there. The only thing that I needed to do was my ability to compete, to, to, to lay out a, a plan, a strategy and execute that. That was the only thing I, you know, I'm saying like I, at the beginning of the year in the first race of the, of the year, uh, I ran 13 flat or, or a sub 13, you know what I'm saying? And that was a monkey off my back. I felt lighter. I was like, I'm, I'm a, I'm a sub 13 guy. You know what I mean? All these guys are sub 13 guys and they can be beat. You know what I mean? But the big thing was stick to the plan, execute it. And, you know, I actually like took the lead earlier than I wanted to, or, or we had uh, talked about me and me and my yeah, coach. Still 10 men involved with just three laps to go. 1200 meters of running. And what will we find in just over a thousand meters? This looks like it could be a surge to the front there from Ahmed from Canada. He's still in with it with three laps to go. But it didn't create anxiety, you, you know what I mean? It, it it allowed me I I I, I read the race, I examined the situation. Um, it was a super fast race and that made me comfortable and relaxed. You know what I'm saying? So I was very, very relaxed mm -hmm. for about two, three K uh, before I took the lead. And when the race was bunging, I started to like feel a little anxious and the the spot opened up for me on the inside. I took the lead. Um and I said, I'm just gonna build it from here. I really don't care, you know? And um I got clipped, clipped, clipped like five, six, seven times. Yakov's getting a bit boxed in, there are some elbows flying. And still Paul Chalimo right on the shoulder of the leader, who is Mohammed Ahmed at the moment. And there's a little over half a mile to go. I almost wiped down with the uh, 450 to go. But every every one of those things, I was like, I'm deterred. I was, I was you know, determined. I'm like, oh, you didn't fall. Keep going. You didn't fall. Keep going. And um, I, I think what I'm really the most proud of is uh, 150. I, I mean, I lost the lead with 300 meters to go. Yes, there's probably some things that I could have, change or redo if i were to run that again or be in that same position um but i got pushed all the way to like fifth sixth and it was easy for me with 150 to go to be like man i did everything i could you know i these guys are just better than me you know what i mean and i could have just folded and, and done that the fourth fastest man in history is closing paul chalimo is rocking and rolling for the first time and so too is ahmed Jakob looks over his shoulder again. Uh, one of the things that came to my mind was all the disappointments of all those years. And I was like, not again. And I remember saying that. And um, that enabled me to just kind of kick past Chalimo. It enabled me to create enough momentum to get past Jakob as well. Jakob's got to hang on because Ahmed of Canada's gone past him. Mukhtar Idris from nowhere with no form at all is going to successfully defend his title. It's a one-two in glorious fashion for Ethiopia. Borrega takes the silver and what an incredible bronze medal for Mohamed Ahmed of Canada. And, you know, I don't think I could have caught those other guys, but I think it's finally, I think that's probably the, the one feeling, the feeling that, that could be put into into that, that 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 moment is finally like finally I did it you know what I mean and finally that I, I can do this you know what I mean and finally I can go and compete with these guys and you know hopefully you know give myself an opportunity for a gold medal you know or a, or a silver medal or multiple medals in, 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 the, in the years to come We've talked about a lot. We've talked about your development as a person, as, as an athlete. We've talked about this stunning performance, you know, a, a year, less than a year ago. Now, of course, we would have been leading into the Olympics this summer. Yeah. The entire world has been turned on its head and there's so much uncertainty about what's going to happen yeah. athletically. Yeah. What? How, how are you feeling about that? And how are you feeling about what your future might hold as an athlete? What unfinished business do you still have? Yeah, I think, um, you know, coming in um, to this, to, into this year, 
It's about okay, you you meddled. Can you can you replicate that? It's good to do it once, but can you do it twice? Uh, can you even make it even better and you know like a higher medal or even get two medals? You know what I mean in the in the two events that that you hope to to compete in. And I felt like even in Doha, like you know I finished the ten thousand meters was last, and I felt like I could have medaled there too. You know what I mean? All the guys that that I competed with. A lot of guys that I beat at the Commonwealth Games beat me, you know, and I was like, you could have, you could have meddled, you could have meddled, you know what I mean? And I, I left those championships not even remembering my uh, bronze medal and the, the the big hurdle that I climbed because seven, eight days later, you know, I'm six, you know what I mean? So I'm a competitive person. So it's like, dang it, like, you know what I mean? I wanted to get a medal and you didn't get that. and I wanted to like challenge myself. I wanted to, you know, run fast times. One of my one of my really like goals is to, you know, better my record. I don't know, like when I when I became came out of college, you know, the the Canadian records, they were good. They were really good and, you know, all those individuals that laid the uh, the the groundworks, I have immense amounts of respect. Um, but, you know, when you're trying to get a contract, for example, the amount of you know like a American record bonus uh, and a, a Canadian record bonus were not the same. Mm-hmm. So you know I don't know like if the one thing that I've over the last few years is or at least try and take uh, initiative of was I want to put those you know Canadian records right near American records or better. That's really what mm-hmm. I want to do because I felt like you know the younger generations that is to come when they graduate from university and it's time for them to sign a contract, I want, you know, them to, to say, I want the exact same amount bonus that an American gets, you know, I want, you know I mean? Like these are difficult times. That's what I'd like to do. And um, it's challenging. And I, I really like challenges. You know, like I have, I've had a great career. If I were to stop right now, like I, that's a great career, you know what I mean? But it's, you got to create challenges for yourself. And, um, you know, I'm telling myself every day, can you be a world dominant athlete like like Mo Farah for five, six, seven years? Can you, you know, can you dominate the world? What can you do? So right now, I felt like, you know, meddling at the world championships kind of gave me a clean slate of what limits I have for, for myself. You know what I mean? Um, from 2016 to 2019, I had the, these hurdles, you know, the mental hurdles. Can you break 13? 13 is pretty difficult. Can you meddle? You know what I mean? Uh, I've done both of those things. You know what I'm saying? So now it's like, it's a reset. You know what I mean? To to a certain extent, it's like, okay, can you be the world's best? Can you you get several more medals? That kind of thing. So, yeah. We want to thank Mo for so openly sharing himself and his experiences with us this week. On behalf of the ShakeOut podcast and Canadian Running Magazine, We also want to express our collective grief following the recent murders of George Floyd and countless other Black and Indigenous peoples across North America at the hands of police violence. We have a renewed commitment to sharing diverse stories from the running community and to using our platforms to amplify melanated voices. If you or someone you know has a story that you think should be shared on the ShakeOut, please feel free to email us at podcast at runningmagazine.ca. You can also connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at ShakeOut Podcast. Thanks for tuning in this week. Stay safe, healthy, and supported, and we'll talk again soon.